Hey everyone, this is Ben. If you're into video games or esports, I'd be very grateful if you have a chance to tune in to the Esports Business Podcast. It's another show I host that discusses the business and economics of the rapidly growing esports industry. We have guests ranging from pro players and former pro players to analysts to high-level esports agents. It makes for some really fun discussion. The tone of the show is similar to this one, and you can find it on iTunes or Podbean. Thanks again for listening to the Maze Mastercast. Howdy, welcome to May's Mastercast. My name is Shannon Deere. I'm the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs, and we're here with your wonderful host, Ben Wiggins. Thanks so much. It's a beautiful day in Aggieland. Agreed. I uh, went wakeboarding this weekend. Yes! I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. You talked about it last week. You said it's your favorite thing and you haven't done it in... Eight years. I figured it out. Eight years. I was very nervous to go back and it was like riding a bike. It was so great. I was so pumped. And so I'm excited that it's going to be warm. At least I think I can wakeboard until end of September pretty easily. Oh, great. I want a video, like a Mikhail Prokhorov type okay. video of you like spectacular. Ryan, like, Ryan got some this oh, weekend. Nice. So, yeah. Um, they're not really that spectacular yet, but they'll get better. Right. It was good. It was hey. good. I was, I felt really good. Felt really solid. Not complaining at all. I did not make the ramp. I mean, I made it. I did not land afterwards. I see. But I will. It will just take a couple more tries. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. Thank you. It was great. Anyway, getting into our show. Yes. We have an amazing guest today, Kyle Gammonthaler. He is important to the world because he is doing a lot in the space of philanthropy, uh, specifically here at Mays, but he is also on the board of the United Way here in the Brazos Valley mm-hmm. and really just has a generous heart and wants to help others. And he shares a lot about giving and then also receiving help. He has a son who has special needs. He talks a little bit about that on the show and just how he has worked to learn to receive help, which I think is an important lesson for all of us. At Mays Business School, Kyle teaches a philanthropy course where they have given away over $500,000 to nonprofit organizations, mostly in the community. And just great work that Kyle's doing, teaching students how to be discerning about philanthropy and organizations and the impact that they're having. And really honored to have Kyle here at Mays and the impact that he's having here and how he's really changing Mays and helping us think about advancing the world's prosperity, not only through business, but through the nonprofit space, which is appreciated. I think the listeners, I think you will enjoy this episode. It's a it's an impactful discussion. Absolutely. Let's get into it. We are pleased to welcome Kyle Gammonthaler to the show. That's good. First try. Okay. That's good. <laughs> All right. I've heard way worse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's perfect. What is your favorite superpower? So I'm going to give a little bit of nuance to this one. Please. So I'm going to choose time travel. Okay. Okay. But here's the caveat. Um, I only want to go back. Oh. So I'm not somebody that reads the end of a story. I don't really like spoilers. Uh-huh. Try to, you know, maintain the integrity of the future. Right, right. But going back, there's just a lot of cool moments that I think would be great to experience. I'd also have to be careful about, you know, of course, changing things, which I'd be careful of. But Or making a lot of money on sports gambling. Or making a lot of money on sports gambling. You know, there's, there's some things that are really positive about that. But I think going back and experiencing moments uh, in history would just be a really cool experience and being, being able to do that. 
Give us one minute on what you do. Sure. So I teach nonprofit and philanthropy courses here at Mays Business School. Get to engage with a group of students that, you know, are trying to find their way in the nonprofit impact-driven space and primarily at Mays Business School. So I get to teach a couple courses every semester, work with students on a daily basis to really just ask questions about their future as they're asking questions about their future. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, a lot of student involvement, a lot of student engagement, and really around this topic of what does impact look like? You know, where am I going in this world? A lot of questions we all ask, but a lot of our students are a little bit braver to ask it now. So- Sure. Yeah. Two minutes on how you got there. So I started in the nonprofit sector here locally at United Way of the Brazos Valley. Um, I was a fundraiser and volunteer manager, managed a volunteer center for a seven county region for a little bit okay. while raising half of a campaign's worth of money for a local nonprofit. And so that was just a really sweet experience to be able to advocate for people that, for a lack of a better way, don't advocate or can't advocate for themselves in ways that are meaningful. And so we were able to do that. I worked with a lot of local businesses doing workplace campaigns. And so a lot of, you know, talking about issues and then kind of had an opportunity through a mutual friend that worked here, Eric Newman. I'll give a shout out to Eric Newman, who worked here and said, hey, there's an opportunity to work with students. I think you'd like it. And so came on board over at Mays to advise students and work with a nonprofit certificate and really found that I enjoyed working with students on a base level. But then I felt like I was talking to myself a lot, especially in the early years. So it was an opportunity to kind of move into the AM space. And I missed the nonprofit space, which is interesting now because I'm actually on the board of United Way the one that I worked with, you know, years ago. So it's fun for things to come full circle like that. But, um, you know, I've just walked through open doors and taken chances, you know, here in town. And, you know, it's, it's been a fun ride so far. What led you toward an emphasis on philanthropy and nonprofit work? You, you talked a second ago about advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves. <laughs> what drove you in that respect? So in college, I w was involved in student organizations. The The main one here at AM was the Wells Project, advocating for, you know, clean water overseas and that kind of stuff. And I've just kind of, I don't know, ha had always had that affinity towards, you know, I felt like I've been given opportunity that others don't have sure. and, and being able to utilize that in a way that is meaningful um, has yeah. always been, you know, top of mind. And so it's almost more of a responsibility than anything. I feel like if I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing. Let, let, so let me see if we can dig even a little sure. deeper. Do you think that came from your parents? Was it teachers? Was you, you nodded? Yeah. All, all the above my wife, you know, uh -huh. we, so I grew up in a family that was very generous. And so that certainly rubbed off. Right. Um, and then I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about my family a lot later, but my wife is somebody that's a model citizen for caring about the needs of others. And so I guess while we were dating in college, there was a certain piece of keeping up with, you know, her ability to just see the needs around her and step into people's lives and care for them in a way that I just didn't even see as an option. And so, yeah, so I think there's been a lot of people, a lot of models along the way that I've looked at and said, you know, I, I want to be like that or be more towards that, or I'm not even close to that, but I can work towards that a little bit. But yeah, it's not through any one specific moment. It's just been this gradual progression of opportunities to engage the people around me. And, you know, you just say yes a lot of the times and, and 
it happens. Out of curiosity, are you religious? Yes. Okay. Yes. W- was that the paradigm through which you learned generosity absolutely. at a young age? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I have a Christian background and, you know, a big piece of that is, you know, what I believe is to be caring for those that aren't cared for traditionally, those that are outcast. And I have, haven't been one normally that's been the outcast, right? Sure. Although... Uh, it would be well-deserved in many ways in our society and culture. I, I have had privilege. And so the Christian background, certainly that upbringing has, is just so critical to the work that I do. But yet at the same time, being able to translate that to a broader audience, there's some pieces of that that are not exclusive to that particular religion, certainly. But yeah, that is a lot of the foundation that's that I'm drawing from okay. as I move through my experience. One experiential learning course in particular that you teach consists of students evaluating local nonprofits to determine how to distribute fifty to one hundred thousand dollars. Tell us more about how the course works. Yeah, so that's a big one. So it's a course I teach called Strategic Philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So in twenty. 20- 15, summer 15, I had what I thought was a, a brilliant idea. And let me make sure that that is sarcasm. Um, I, there was a local news article that was written for, and I said that and they wrote it like I was just saying, I had a brilliant idea. Right. <laughs> Period. So I had what I thought was a brilliant idea. And that was, I think it'd be really cool if students could give away money in a classroom setting. I felt like being able to practice generosity was something that would be a a really fruitful experience. Hmm. And then my next thought was, A, I don't have the money personally, so I can't really do that. And I hope somebody else has thought of this that also has a lot of money for me to work with (laughs) and give away their money because I don't have that as much as I would love to. And, And so I started looking around and, you know, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, there are a lot of organizations around the country that are dedicated towards funding philanthropic education and probably a lot of reasons for that. I'm, I imagine those that have a lot want to be sure that those that come after them learn how to manage that well. Sure. In a meaningful way. Yeah. So I uh, started looking around at some numbers of organizations that how much money they were g- giving away or giving out and found, ran across an organization called the Philanthropy Lab. So the Philanthropy Lab has been a, just a, such a crucial partner to the work that we do here. And they fund philanthropic education courses at Harvard, Stanford, UT, Baylor, TCU, Abilene Christian, Michigan, all these peer and aspirant schools. And we weren't on that list. And I wanted to be on that list because they were and we weren't. So I reached out to them. And, you know, as it goes, there were some Aggie connection there in terms of somebody that had been asking why it wasn't at A&M yet. And we were able to bring that course here in uh, spring 16 mm-hmm. and it works on a lot of levels. S- students are able to learn about generosity both personally, but then practice it in a more professional environment as they essentially run a private foundation here each semester. Do you have a specific example? So the one that stands out is Health for All. They are a health clinic here locally that provides free medical care to the underinsured and uninsured so that people who have routine illnesses don't wait until they're so serious that they can't manage them themselves at all Mm -hmm. with really simple health care. Liz Dickey is the executive director and she's just incredibly passionate. She's one of the ones who's had a few of our students as board members 
And I almost think of her joy when giving away the checks because she's always just blown away by even after they've received checks multiple times, understandably so, because they're an awesome organization. But seeing her personal excitement and a few times she has just spontaneously said thank you to the students and to just whoever is listening in that check celebration moment. And it's unscripted. Those unscripted moments are when it just kind of spills out because that's a validation of the work they're doing. Right. It's a validation that, hey, others believe in what we do. And at this point in time, it's tied to a specific value of, you know, a dollar value. But Mm -hmm. um, the fact that everybody's here, yeah, seeing her excitement and her joy is a a lot of fun. And we've also given to organizations that I care about as well. So although I don't get a vote, I kind of give a little little mini fist pump whenever they give to organizations that I'm like, yeah, I would have done that if I was you. And so it's fun interacting with them and saying, and they thank me. I say, oh, no, I didn't do it. They did it. They saw it. They're like, oh, wow. Okay. This is real. This issue hits close to home for me because I'm always wondering which nonprofits would economize best on my donations. Sure. Uh, we've had Chris Field of Mercy mm-hmm. Project on oh, the yeah. show. Good friend. I, I think that a lot of people end up donating to organizations where they know someone involved with mm-hmm. the organization because they're like, oh, so-and-so would use my money well. Sure. I, I think in Chris's case, it's particularly relevant because Chris is also an entrepreneur and he thinks like an economist. So shouts to Chris. But... Let's move into the course itself. Sure. What is your most cherished memory from the course now that you've brought it in? I mean, the the softball answer is really recent. We reached our $500,000 mark this past spring. Congratulations. Um, yeah, it, it was, you know, so so just a little bit more on the background of the course, the, every dollar we give away comes from another donor. So somebody else has said, I'm delegating my responsibility to give for lack of a better term, to you students through my class, and then they make the decisions. And so every dollar we've given away has come from somebody else. Hmm. And so there's a lot of trust there. We can talk about trust as much as we want. But the cherished memory is, is yes, the dollar amount, which I think is really, really great. But we do a check celebration every year, every semester, when we give away the big giant checks to nonprofits. Hmm. So we're giving away between 50 and 100,000 every semester, usually five to eight nonprofits are getting it. And so the cherished moments are those moments when you get to meet the nonprofits face to face, most of which I know, some of which I don't. And they get to celebrate, we get to celebrate the work that they do here locally. And it's just really hard to mimic that in any other environment, just true joy for, you know, some validation for the work that they're doing, being able to see that and see the students be like, oh, okay, it's real. This is why we do this. It's, this hasn't been a simulated activity. They're actually going to go out and do real work with this money. So I think most recently is hitting that milestone, which has been really great. Most surprising challenge. Uh, it's a huge responsibility. I mean, I, I don't know. I probably should have expected that. <laughs> that is, someone's giving me 50000 You know, we've had a family over three years give us over $200,000 of their own funds to give away to students that they don't know. Good bull. <laughs> they, good yeah, bull, some good good bull, bull to them, there. whoever yeah. they are. Yeah, the Van Lowe family. It's it's no secret. They've been okay. an incredible supporter of the class. Grace Van Lowe um, took the very first class, huh. and then her family just, you know, they bought into the vision of the course. And so most surprising challenge, yeah, has been the responsibility on my end, because I don't have a vote. 
so I set the stage for the students. Students make all the decisions. Hmm. They say yes, they say no, they say maybe, they decide amounts and what to give. But I actually, at certain points in the semester, step back and I don't have a vote in where the money goes. I think that's a smart approach. What do the students then get graded on? It's So it's a lot of reflection. So we do a lot of writing. Yeah. The topic of philanthropy is so broad and diverse and personal that it, it lends itself really well to reflection mm-hmm. in a lot, a lot of great ways. So there's a lot of writing, a lot of participation class is heavily discussion oriented. And so there's a lot of, you know, reading and expectations in the classroom environment for being engaged. It's a class of 18 students. So not huge, but not tiny either. I mean, so your voice can get muddled in a group of 18. So it's being purposefully engaged, writing quality, level of commitment to diving deep into your thoughts, and then other assignments that are there along the way. But a lot of it is about the process that they're in and and recognizing both in written form and in engagement, the responsibility that they have to do this well. So let's talk a little bit about specific external impacts Mm -hmm. in terms of how the course has had an effect on the community. You mentioned internal impacts in terms of the donations that have been received and so forth, but uh, has there been a particularly relevant moment in terms of what you've been able to do for outside? Sure. So the fact that we get to operate heavily locally, I mean, 95% of our funds have stayed right here in the Brazos Valley, which Mm -hmm. was on purpose in many ways, allows us to drive by buildings that we've helped fund and pull up next to a trailer that serve, that helps rebuild and repair houses for elderly and dis, and the disabled and veterans pull up next to the trailer on Welburn Road, right? And be like, oh, that's what we funded right, right. there. Yeah. That's what the students funded and they get to do that as well. So living here and this being home for me, I get to interact with the nonprofits and, and actually see the work that's been funded over the years. Um, one marker of... I mean, success or impact that we've had has been when uh, some local nonprofits have asked some of the students to serve as voting board members on their board Mm. their senior year. Okay. So, which was not expected, but as students have interacted with the nonprofits, traditionally, nationally, the student to nonprofit board engagement model is traditionally in the uh, MBA space, um, the graduate level space, which for a lot of good reasons. But I think one sneaky reason that I'm not a big fan of is that we assume that that they're the most qualified to engage issues of value in a community. And I think our local nonprofits, in fact, are many of the experts in working with students here, especially here in College Station, that's what they do. And so they see a junior and they see their passion and they see how much they care. And they say, we want your voice in our organization, not just to be there, but to be a legal voting binding board member. And so we've had a handful of those, which I think is a testament more to the students and um, their ability to connect with the issues in, in powerful ways. We've talked a lot about empowering the young mm-hmm. recently on the show. And I think that's, you know, in How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, Carnegie talks about giving the other person a great name to live up to. And I think historically in American business, we've always sort of shunted young people to the side a little bit. And I think it's great that people 17, 18, 19, 20, that we're valuing the contributions that those kind that that people that age can make to what we're doing and and 
the power of a young person to innovate should should never be underestimated. Oh, I agree. I agree. Next thing, you're the coordinator for the certificate in nonprofit and social innovation. What is that? Sure. So it's probably most similar to a minor, but it's exclusive to students at Mays Business School. Just the, the term we use is a certificate. So it's a space for students to supplement their primary major in a way that allows them to focus on a topic area that they are interested in in some way. And so the way I kind of talk about it is it's it's for students who want to work for, with, or alongside nonprofits or social purpose type of organizations. Mm-hmm. So there's no expectation of them to be certified to then work in a nonprofit or for them to be certified to then only work for Tom's or Patagonia, right? Right. But they are equipped in many ways to speak that language right away. We don't do a lot of, there's not a lot of undergraduate education around nonprofit and there's a lot of reasons for that, but the certificate gives them a space to operate within 13 hours of credits, an internship with a nonprofit or a m- organization that's moving towards some kind of social purpose. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so they graduate with it. And we've had, we graduate about 12 to 15 students every year. We have about 60 pursuing it at any one time. Classes are full. So there's definitely an interest there. And those are just Mays Business School students. So um, it's a really, it's a really fun experience. Tell me about your tattoo oh, on yeah. your wrist. It, to, yeah. for, the, for the listeners, it's sure. two, two circles and then a circle at the end that's filled in. It's a personal one, um, which as they are, it's visible. We have two, well, we have two kids now. Uh-huh. The closed circle, we had a miscarriage. Oh. So we wanted a, a way to always remember sure. um, one that we lost. Uh, we'll have to add another circle in November because we have one on the way. Right. So Congratulations. this arm is going to be very full probably at some point. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, you know, my wife and I both have the same one talking about a way to remember something that you feel like kind of fades over time. And this is certainly a permanent way to do that. And so, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Of course. What are your dreams for the future of Maze in the nonprofit space? How do you see the courses you teach growing or changing in the next few years? Weirdly, I think we will move away from primarily talking about nonprofit, that term. I think it's a good term. And I think I think it's a very positive term. But I I think what we've done a little bit is, and by we I just mean our culture, the American culture or or the national the international culture about nonprofits has relegated impact to just the nonprofit space. Like it's expected there, right? It's it's where it's supposed to happen. It's where it's legally supposed to happen by them having to have a mission that is oriented towards some cause of public concern. And so I think the future, where the future goes, is a little bit more of a purposeful overlap in the fact that as business, as government, as nonprofit, as a player in the local scene, wherever you are, that impact isn't exclusive to nonprofits. You know, I talk to students all the time that if you think that the only place you're going to impact the world is in a nonprofit, you're going to be disappointed. I mean, if that's the only place you're looking for impact. And, and so I think where we're growing certainly is going to be in the nonprofit space. But I think that there's a lot of opportunities in courses at Mays Business School. And it's already being done. But I think in the, the dream, the future is certainly having some overlap there where courses and assignments and companies that we're using as examples are looked at uh, on a more full level for the impact that they have in a community, both positive and negative. I think we can learn, learn a lot from decisions that, that are made in that space. It seems that the way we're always taught to think about business is in terms of for-profit or 
as we've been discussing sure. primarily today, not for profit, yeah. then how are, are, are you talking about breaking that paradigm in some way? Or are you talking about more of this happening in the for-profit space because for-profit businesses are increasingly concerned with social progress and, you know, having a positive impact on the planet. Like what is it, what does this look like? Yeah. I think it's, um, the focus being less on the organizational structure that accomplishes the impact, but the, the impact itself. Right. And so you look at any company that's out there. I mean, you know, you can look at Starbucks, right? A a traditional for-profit endeavor, Mm -hmm, right? That mm -hmm. does really great work, keeps us all awake in the morning. I mean, they they do a good job of that. But they've recognized in some of their ways to in which ways in which that align with the the goals and purpose of their own company that also overlap with issues of concern that can also benefit them as well. Like they, you know, provide education to their employees. Right. Right. So they're helping fill a gap that they can help fill. But at the same time, it also benefits them, which isn't which isn't a bad thing. So I I think that there's a by not saying impact only happens in nonprofit space and saying it can happen elsewhere and it should happen elsewhere. I just think there's a level of responsibility in our decision making that can come out in the decisions we make. And it's more of a a collective impact as opposed to just a sector driven impact. So let's talk about the hardest question that that gets us to in the for-profit sector, Mm -hmm. in my mind, which is when the rubber meets the road and you have to make a decision between does the marginal dollar go to something that can have a community impact Mm -hmm. or does it go back into earnings per share and, and, you know, impacting the stock price? Is there even a method for how we think about that? I mean, obviously it's different for each person, but how do you suggest that since you're an expert in this area, how do you suggest people even start to think about those kinds of questions? It's just like generosity, right? Or, or an ethical decision that you make. If you're having, if, if the first time you're making that decision is at the moment when you have to make that decision, good luck, right? Like it right. might, it might go well, it might not. Right. And so just like we talk about our students with ethics to be mindful of the situations put yourself in a situation ahead of time so that when that situation happens, you can respond in a way that you've thought through it a little bit already. Mm-hmm. And so I say the same thing with generosity. And so I think it's, a, it's I mean, there's a lot of culture-driven pieces, a lot of leadership-driven pieces. There, There's a uh, an organization, our company called Bridgeway Capital. Bridgeway Capital gives away 50% of their profits every year to issues that they care about as a company. Yeah, But that didn't start randomly, right? It started from the beginning uh-huh. from leadership and it's been a, a purposeful strategic decision. And, and so, yeah, there, to answer your question, there, there isn't a clear method on how to do that. Truthfully, okay. you know, in the nonprofit space, we're trying to answer, how do you measure impact? And we've tried to use the term social return on investment, which is uh, difficult to measure. Does the dollar that I give to the boys and girls club, does that impact a child's life in a measurable way? Right. And can we measure that? And so in the for-profit space, there is a recognition that you're engaging into some gray area a little bit. And so it is a lot of values driven decisions at that point. Now we're, we're talking about positive externalities. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those are easy to measure. Sometimes those are very hard to measure. Sure. Many of our students complete internships. It's a requirement in many programs, including the certificate you run. This question is just for fun. Let's say you decided tomorrow that you wanted to go get an internship with a social purpose organization, nonprofit or for-profit. What organization would you want to intern for? 
It was really hard to pick. I ended up landing on an organization called Charity Water. Yeah. Really because I'm just fascinated by their approach to raising money, to documenting their impact. Um, because I think they recognize that donors want to be drawn into the story, but not in a fake way, right? Not Not in a way that is marginalizing those that are marginalized already. There's some nonprofits that with good intentions will capitalize on suffering in a way that is exploitive, right? And we don't see that a lot. A lot of times it's international that happens, but Charity Water does an incredible job of dignifying the people that they serve. And so dignity is a piece of, if I have students from my classes listening at any point, I talk about dignity a lot. And so, because I think that that's a big piece of what we can bring is giving people dignity. And so the work that they do, the way they take pictures right? They are uplifting pictures. They're smiling. Now they're showing hard things, right? Kids don't have clean water, right? right? Let's be real about the issue at hand, but they're able to bring people into the story a little bit. And and then the founder, I love his story as well. Scott Harrison wrote a book called Thirst and he went over his time as a nightclub promoter to realizing that wasn't as fulfilling as he expected to going and serving overseas on a medical missions boat called Mercy Ship, where they do free medical care for the coast of Africa. And he saw that water was a really um, just a critical need that could be met or dirty water was a critical need that could be met by giving clean water. And the barriers to do that really weren't that much as long as you could drill down into a source. So Charity Water itself, I think because they are always and have been at the forefront of innovating the nonprofit space and bringing a positive name to it, I think learning from them, they always feel like they're a few steps ahead of everybody else. Hmm. And so I'd like to be a few steps ahead as well, if possible. So, But they're a really, really great organization. What is the most important thing you can do to give people dignity? I mean treat them like a person. Like uh, it's not that the, the bar's not low, right? Treat them like a person. You right. know, you see somebody on the side of the street, like they're a human that has had a life and a story and you know, whether you engage with them or not, just even in your mind, you can give them dignity, right? By viewing them as a, as a human. I think that we, it's really easy for us to distance ourselves from any number of hard issues. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, right? And, and No, no, not at all. But I'm, I'm wondering where the lack of giving people dignity tends to manifest. I mean, yes, often there tends to be a, sen- a sense of distance between us and the person we're helping. Sure. But what I'm trying to piece together is how that distance ends up making us make the other person feel undignified. Mm. Does the, does that, where, yeah. where does this problem show up? Sure. I, and again, it's usually not explicit, right? It's not right. like the person's like, I feel undignified, you know, right, um, right. it is, it's subtle. And so it's, it's creeping. It's a bunch of small decisions along the way that all of a sudden you're like, okay, they haven't been empowered. And now, uh, okay, so it's okay. a lot of empowerment, right? Yes. So giving pe- pe- people a voice. So an example would be locally. I got to have a couple local nonprofit shout outs, uh, Brazos Valley Food Bank. Yes. They have a program called Together We Grow. Right. Together We Grow helps 
educate those that are either homeless or struggling to make ends meet to, uh, they, they, they want to shorten the food line, right? They don't want to give more people food, right? They want less people to need food, to need food, right? And so a lot of that's empowering them to make decisions about what does healthy eating look like? How do I manage my finances well to a place in which I'm not reliant on the food bank in a meaningful way? So empowerment, I guess, is probably the, the buzzword there that would fit there the most. And, and it seems like what that so often comes back to is some kind of education. Sure. And do you find that there is a form of education that shows up consistently in the nonprofit space? Is it an understanding of geology, for example, <laughs> like in terms of this is how we can help this community understand how to extract clean water mm-hmm. for themselves? Is it an understanding of economics? I don't know. Like what sort of education do you find keeps showing up the most often. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're getting into some really big challenges of the nonprofit space. Right. Is that each nonprofit might have their different view on what the root of the problem is. Uh, right. Yeah. So yeah, you're you right. have 10 different organizations looking at poverty. One of them says, oh, that's family. The family structure needs to be strengthened, which right. I personally believe is probably a pretty good indicator of yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, the strength of a family. But then others may say, oh, no, it's not that. It's education. Like family's fine, but then education, but then someone would say, well, the family structure can lead to education. They're like, okay, well then it's systemic issues that have happened in the past that are now rearing their heads now. And so you, the interpretation of an issue is hard too, right? So it's a incredibly challenging issue. And so there, there's a recognition that that's why I like organizations like United Way or foundations that are funding issue areas and almost oh, by the way, working with nonprofits is that there's a collective nature that has to happen for us to look at a problem and see it and tackle it from a bunch of different areas. There's a a coordination gap, I think, that happens across the, with because of good intentions across the nonprofit space. Let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. And talk about sustainability. Let's do it. Why should students care about sustainability? Well, if they ever were in Boy Scouts, you know, leave <laughs> the world, you know, better than how you found it. You know, I, I think that we we get caught up, I think, in the aspirational views of it, you know, in terms of we talk about people, planet and profit. Right. And the aspirations of what we want our world to look like are really big and hard to really feel like we could get there. And so I think bringing it back to a base level, I like talking about social sustainability. We often talk about with sustainability of being kind of going green, which is good all for it. But the the social sustainability, again, it goes back to the people that are being affected, that are making decisions. We're talking big issues like human rights and child trafficking and all these things. It's important for everybody and everybody, meaning businesses, nonprofits and government to, at the very minimum, understand what their impact is positive and negative, right? I'm not even saying that a business is required to engage in this. I don't know. They're not. They're not at this point, but looking at ways in which they at least can identify the areas in which the world looks different because of the work they do, positive and negative. And so sustainability, I think, is important, sure, but it has to be personal, too. I mean, you, you have to know what you want from it, right? You want to know you have to know what you want the world to look like in the future to actually make decisions now. Otherwise, you're just kind of randomly doing things. Mm. 
How do businesses know where to orient their decision-making in the sustainability realm? So there's a concept uh, or a, a, a movement called the Sustainable Development Goals. So those have been made in partnership between the United Nations and KPMG and a number of other companies, but they were the two main drivers. And these sustainable development goals get at some of the really the largest issues that are that are affecting our world, right? These are big, bold goals like uh, no extreme poverty, um, peace and justice, clean water for all, like big, huge things that <laughs> we'd like to, I know you're like, oh, let's go. And then you're like, ah, how do I do that? <laughs> um, so there's a bunch of details and measures on how to get there. But we had an opportunity a couple of years ago to meet one of the... Um, primary drivers of that, Lord Michael Hastings, British royalty. So he came down and um, shared with us about the process of uh, developing these goals and the the meaning behind them and what it could look like for the private sector to engage them in ways that are powerful. And so, yeah, he shared with us that. and, And the temptation is to say, yeah, those are huge, but I mean where do we fit into that? And so they know that question is coming. And so on the website, you know, if you look up sustainable development goals, you can see some really breakdown of how they're broken down. And even in our maze strategic plan, we, we have a few that we've oriented some pieces towards, which I think is, is good. And so it's things like that, small movements like that, you know, if everybody's doing their part, we'll, we'll move forward as opposed to backward, which is, which is a goal. Great. You also serve as a faculty advisor to 180 Degrees Consulting and Net Impact. Give us a minute on that. And the Wells Project and Brotherhood of Christian Aggies. So there's four. Yeah, those two first ones are more maze business specific. And uh, again, uh, in our theme of you know, student empowerment. Student organizations are just a great way for students to be able to practice what they're learning right now, right? They can get internships, which is a good place to do that. They can get jobs, but then the ability to develop their leadership skills and their decision-making and managing people and all that while happening around a topic that they're also passionate about is something that I'm uh, very pro for. And, And so my role as a faculty advisor is really to make sure they don't burn the building down right? They wind them up and let them go. Students are passionate, right? And for us to give them space to move and innovate and operate, um, I'm not going to get in the way of that. Even if I know they're going to make a bad decision or what I think is a bad decision. I'm like, no, I kind of have to think, is it going to ruin everything? Probably not. Are they going to learn and grow from it? And can, can I talk with them about it afterwards? Absolutely. So 180 DC, Net Impact, they have very real impact on the nonprofit space. And um, so 180 DC in particular, they do do pro bono work for nonprofit organizations, and they've even done some for for-profit. So they helped develop JCPenney's CSR plan, right? They've worked with AT&T as a student organization. Um, and these are graduate level to freshman students doing this over a semester timeframe, but they've kind of found their niche of working with startup new nonprofits that are open and willing to learn and grow and welcome in some students that are educated on the topic and educated on that environment to be able to help them move forward. So again, uh, just a really great opportunity to watch students do their thing and not get in the way. And what is CSR for our listeners who might not know yet? Corporate social responsibility. Thanks. Yeah. You have a family, wife. I do. uh, Two kids, as we talked about. and One on the way. One on the way. What surprised you about having a family? Look, here, here's the thing. Being a dad and being a husband to me is the ultimate responsibility, right? I mean, if your family is taken care of and is moving forward, you know, positively and growing, and it's hard for me to think of anything else that's greater than that, 
to me personally. And so with that mindset, right, thinking about how do I help my wife be the best person that she can be at the same time she's doing that for me and probably more so. Um, And then how do I, my kids, I have a four and a two-year-old right now. How do you give them the tools to be successful in their own way and not get in their way, you know, Um, as they're growing up? uh, My oldest, Grant, he's four, actually has quite a bit of physical special needs that has been just a game changer for our family. And this is probably the moment where I'll probably cry at some point. But the ability to now know what it's like to be on the receiving end of help Mm. is incalculable. Right. So we've been on the receiving end of generosity when my whole life I've been on the giving end of generosity. Sure. And it's a hard place to be. But, um, you know, I was talking with my wife the, the other day and the fact that we have people around us that are with us in the hard moments is 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 really powerful. And so um, as a family, it's staying close in hard times. Right. There we go. We've gone through a lot of hard stuff and like it, like a lot of families have, like all families have. And, you know, how do you look at a four-year-old that you know is going to have some challenges in life and be positive about it. And somehow we have, right? I think it goes back to the faith piece. Yeah. I mean, that's a big piece of it, of how we've done that. But, you know, when you look at your four-year-old, you look at your two-year-old and they're happy with with how life is and they're joyful and being fun and being kids, it's, you can't just step back and let that and enjoy those moments. And and so, yeah, it's been, it's been a big responsibility. It's, if you would have, if I would have written it out, about being a parent and a husband before, probably been pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yet you're prepared for it along the way. It doesn't happen overnight. So you, you know, you grow into each moment, right? Someday we'll have teenagers. Some days we'll have, so, someday we'll have older kids and we'll be ready for those moments. Not ready right now. And my two-year-old daughter, I'm like, no, you can, <laughs> you're good to where, where you're at. Right. I don't want you to be older yet, but someday it'll happen. And then that time we'll be ready for it. And yeah. You mentioned that you've received a lot. Sure. Is there anything in particular or a person in particular, anything you would want to point to? Sure. So we raised money for a, um, a service dog for our oldest, for Grant, okay. um, to train a service dog. Now, that's been a messy process, which we've been open about to everybody that's that's been there. It wasn't a seamless process. Yeah. But... Um, we had a lot of people that chose to invest their resources, their money in our family to help train a dog that could be a support in some meaningful way to our son. Mm-hmm. And that's worked out in a lot of ways. And it's been challenging in others, right? It's, it hasn't been perfect, but uh, I'm very awkward when it comes to accepting help. <laughs> so, um, so that was hard. It was, it took a, it was very humbling for our family to just, when people said, no, we want to help, right? No, 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 it's good. Like, no, really, we want to help that, that whole thing. Like, no, I'll take the check. No, you take the check. No, I'll take the check. Like, let's just split it. To accept help, it's been a practice. I think we've gotten a little bit better at it, but you just have to be humble and know that people, just like my intentions to give to somebody are trying to be good. Those that are giving to us over time have been, we just have to trust that they're they're uh, doing it because they love us and they care for us and want our well-being and really care for our son. And so um, that, that's that been a really, that was a unique process. Raise, I mean, we people gave us a lot of money and we were just blown away by the support. So a moment ago, we brushed back against the dignity conversation again (laughs) in, in a way, surprisingly, that doesn't seem like it has a whole lot to do with education because you're as familiar with these structures as anyone is. Uh, So you said earlier that allowing the other person to be a person Mm -hmm. 
in those moments is particularly important. Was there anything about how people interacted with you Hmm. that made you feel respected or like a person or like they're not patting you on the head, but rather lifting you up and helping you and your family go forward and prosper is... There anything that you would offer to someone who wants to help a friend of theirs or someone else that they're aware of who's in that kind of situation? How do you do that the best possible way? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to admit that you don't have all the answers, right? Sometimes someone coming to you and saying, hey, look, we don't know what you're going through. (laughs) We can't. We've never experienced that. We don't know, but we see. I see it. And I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> to me, that's refreshing. I'm like, thank you. Like, I don't know either, right? right. Like, don't put the responsibility on me to, to, to tell you what I need because I'm sure. already bad enough at that anyways, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I, I think it's just a willing, again, willingness to see them as people and, and seeing us as a family that has our own challenges and struggles and um, to not shy away from the hard parts. Um, and so that's that's been the beauty of at least living here in this area, our friends and family and people we've known haven't shied away. And our son makes it really easy because he's, he's hilarious and he's, will talk anybody's ear off, but people still call and check in on how things are going. And even when everything seems fine and every day is not really hard, right? There are a lot of good days, but I think the recognition that it's okay for you to not have the answer for someone that's in your life that is going through something that you've never experienced, but not saying something is probably not a great option at that point. It seems like if if we're trying to crystallize this as simply as possible, the admission that you don't know that person's life, but you see their struggle and you want to help in some way. Is that, is that a, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good start, right? It's not a bad start and feels like a low bar. Yeah. Right. But it really isn't. And people will ask. Right. And people will um, say things. You're like, I don't really know if you knew that you meant that <laughs> the way you said it. Um, so I'll kind of take that charitably. So there's a lot of a lot of space. We as we've engaged the special needs population, you know, you just start realizing how the world is set up for everybody else. Right. right? And that, and that's okay. So I had a group of students in my class last semester for a, my one hour seminar. They made a fictional nonprofit that worked towards giving adults with special needs jobs. I thought it was really cool. And they did a really great job in their presentation talking about adults with special special needs as opposed to special needs adults. So that people first language, mm-hmm. um, you know, you would say a child with autism as opposed to an autistic child. Okay. Right. So small tweaks like that where people don't really notice it, but someone who, if someone were, were to say, yeah, your special needs son, I'm not offended by it, but it would help me think that you see him more as a person. If you say he's a child that almost like happens to have special needs, like it's, sure. he's a child first, right? He's a, he's a, he's grant first. And so, so seeing students do that and then being able to tactfully and respectfully speak into other people's lives, um, about how to interact in this space. That's really awkward. And we, we admit it. It's awkward for us too. Um, so not shying away is a big piece of it. It seems like one of the inherent challenges of empathy then is being able to walk the line (laughs) between, I feel this thing in you. There is some pain that I sense is there, Mm -hmm. but I don't pretend to understand the exact nature of it because empathy 
if I understand it correctly, is, you know, is being able to identify with someone. Sure. But you have to be careful. There's sort of an unknowable element of it. You have to be careful how far you take it because you can't say to a person who just lost a child, for right. example, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. Right. But flowing out to them in their moment of pain is the way to do that is one of the trickiest things we have to do as adults. I agree. I'll go with you that with that statement right there. It's yeah. it's tricky, and uh, and again, but what's the alternative, right? The alternative is doing nothing, right? Is that better <laughs> than giving it a shot? No, no, no. no I'm not saying you were saying that, but I think that there's. I think when we're that's a really um, uh, the. Uh, empathy space is scary. Yeah. Right. It's really, really scary from the outside. Right. And then like, as soon as you like go through the veil, you're like, Oh, like we're all people like this isn't so bad. I mean, it's bad. It's not great. The reason why we're doing this, but you actually, it's a little bit more freeing to operate in that space. I think the, the, from a distance you can make interpretations and, and assumptions that just, you know, are easily dispelled taking one step forward. We come back to gratitude Mm -hmm. a lot on this show. We believe that gratitude is one of the biggest contributors to happiness. What makes you grateful? You know, I'm a a big family guy, as you can tell already. So, yeah, I'm grateful that through challenging circumstances, we've been able to remain strong. Mm-hmm. There's a number of families that that go through challenging things and it tears families apart, mm-hmm. right? I'm grateful that that hasn't happened. Currently, we are in the moving process. We're moving in town, so don't have anybody worry. We're still here. We're building a house that is going to be accessible for our son. Huh. So grateful for the means to be able to do that. Sure. Right. The people that have allowed us to be able to do that. Grateful that we, I mean, we, we found such a great support system here that, you know, this is home and to be able to invest here and have people invest in us that, and, and give us the freedom to invest in them has been, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah. As a Gallup strengths finder, strengths educator, what have you learned about your own personal strengths and how have you been able to intentionally grow in them? I love Strength Finder. I think it's uh, accessible and relatively simple for anybody to help identify areas in which they can talk about themselves. Sometimes it's hard to talk about ourselves um, in ways that make sense. And so I think the beauty of Strength Finder and the the five talent themes that you get, not strengths, the talent themes that say you are naturally predisposed to being good at X the ability for us to then invest in those and give ourselves opportunity to grow towards a strength. I think uh, StrengthsFinder does a great job. There's a bunch of other things out there that, that help as well. I'm not an expert on the Enneagram, so don't ask me any Enneagram questions. <laughs> I, I need to. That's like a goal for this summer because my students don't talk about it. But StrengthsFinder, yeah, I, I think that we, you know, I've found the most value in, yes, understanding what that talent theme is saying about who I am or how I operate. But also looking at the, it's called the shadow side or the barrier label. So what does it look like when a talent theme or a strength is used unproductively? And that's been most telling. It's easy to have a positive view of myself, right? But it's a lot more nuanced person when I can understand the flip side to that. So for example, would be my number one strength or talent theme is belief. And which is not all that surprising given the work that I do. I, I have to be at my best. I'm bought into a mission. I'm going 
full force towards a, a particular purpose or a goal. You know, I'm deeply bought into it. The barrier label or the shadows I when used unproductively, it would say I would have blinders on, hmm. right? Like I'm only focused on that mission that any externality or something that comes across, I'm less able to navigate that which I've seen that happen at times. So I just have to be conscious of that, that to be bought in doesn't mean to be blinded by like your one goal, like your singular goal. And, and so talking with students about those, I did a Gallup Finder certification course, and it was just gave some good tools to help students unpack that all of our freshmen take it. So every student at Mays, every undergrad, and probably every graduate student, honestly, has done it at some point, but all of our freshmen have done that. And so it gives a common language too, for us to speak to our students as well. What strengths of your wife and kids do you appreciate most? So my wife, we were talking this weekend. I said, you know, remind me of the five that you have. And and, and one that has always stuck out is empathy, right? Shocker. And so just talking about what what I've learned. So yeah, she's able to step in the shoes of other people Mm -hmm. somehow, some way, all the time, every day. You know, it just happens. And, And she feels it like to her core. And that's challenging to do sure. that. It's hard. It's scary for me to, to feel that all the time. I'm yeah. like, I'll put some distance there, but she's really good at kind of seeing a need, stepping into it, somehow feeling it to where she kind of has a better way to operate in that. So yeah, I think that has always stood out from, from day one has been something that I've seen. And my kids, they're just really joyful right now. That's not a talent thing, but um, joy, I think is, is good. They have such a charitable interpretation of the world around them. Like my son will walk out on a rainy day and say, it is a beautiful day outside. Like (laughs) it's not, but it, you know what, buddy, it is like, that's fine. So I'll go with that. (laughs) Right. Rapid fire. Yeah. What do you consider your most valuable failure? I'm actually more concerned with the small failures that build up before you realize you've actually failed. You know, I think big failures are good and, and certainly, you know, there are those, but when I think about failing, I think about the times in which I have spoken before I listened, Hmm. right? Like I heard some of this comes from advising. This comes from parenting. This comes from being a husband, like uh, uh, an employee. It's just, um, being a fundraiser, talking with pe- people in need, because what happens is I am assuming what they're going, what they're about to say, right? Or I'm thinking about what I'm going to say before they say it. it. Happens all the time. We do that, and so the failure moments are the times in which I've done that and I've misinterpreted it and offered advice or feedback that just wasn't relevant or meaningful or helpful at all. And so the successful piece of that is recognizing those moments so that it doesn't snowball into a habit that I have of doing that, right? I'm trying to be very conscious when I'm talking with people to actually be dialed in, right, to that moment and and meet that person or student where where they are right then. So the failures have just been the times where it didn't move the needle at all. And it was probably because I just didn't listen, which is really simple. Right. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? That everything is put together, right? I, I it's very easy to make sure that things are put together, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and not that I'm you know I'm unraveled at home, right? But but it's that you know that there are challenging things, and I the profession I have chosen is to always be thinking about poverty and homelessness and hunger and all these things to where you know yeah there are moments where it's tough and it's hard, and I'm pretty good at kind of making sure it looks good. But, you know, it's not as easy as it may seem sometimes to to balance all that behind the scenes and had a lot of practice. 
but those that know me, you know, the best thing about that question is I know the ones that know me best should know that already. Right. Right. There, there are a lot of good things about yeah. that question. <laughs> if you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? I think it would be fascinating right now. And this is so cliche of the work I have to, um, learn from Bill and Melinda Gates right now. Okay. So, and here's why, not because I want their money because they have, chosen to engage some of the hardest issues on a massive scale with significant amount of chances that they fail. Right. <laughs> like just incredible amount of failure can happen and has happened. And they've admitted that. Right. Right. So they primarily operate internationally because their impact can be greater. Money goes a lot further overseas. They got some pushback. So they invested heavily domestically in education. <laughs> After about a year, they were like, yeah, we didn't do such a great job. Oh. Education's really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we need to put a lot more money into it and do it a way different way. And so, so being around people and a couple that are able to, that have made it their life's mission to invest in others. And because I don't see it as an obligation for them to do, do what they do. Right. Others may see that, that they have so much, therefore they must give a lot of it away. I actually think that they have a responsibility to think about that decision. And I'm glad they've come on the other side of saying, we're going to do this. And so being in their minds and being around them, seeing their decision-making and knowing that they think differently than I do on a lot of things would be, I think would be a really sweet opportunity to grow. What is your fondest memory of TAMU? Living, working here, going going to school here is there's a lot. I mean, I met my wife here. When I proposed to her, we had, you know, we kind of went around to different places or across campus and we still live here. So those places are still here. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the the friendships and the um the the growth that has happened. And I mean, I started at AM in two thousand seven as a kid, right? Feels <laughs> and now with kids and to be able to think about how much has happened over the years is just really, it's really sweet moments. And so, yeah, I mean, I met my wife here, so it can't get much better than that. Right. (laughs) True. Do you have anyone you would like to send some good bull recognizing someone else for something good or great they've done? So, I mean, I've talked about my family a lot, so there's always some good bull there, but I think it's broad, but, um, the nonprofit organizations, that wake up every day and step into the front lines to actually do the work that we're talking about, right? So we have the benefit of talking about these hard issues, right? which we're, is good. We're sitting in the ivory we're tower. We're sitting at, in the ivory tower. Uh, to a degree at the moment. Which is fine. And, and we accept that. And that's okay. And so, but, uh, you know, when I talk with nonprofits, I think that, you know, it's always a reminder to them that, you know, you are going out and doing the work. And tomorrow it's going to wake up and you're going to wake up and it's going to be hard, right? And it's going to be hard the next day and poverty is not going to be solved tomorrow. We know that. It just won't be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the good bull is to those that have made it a, their life's work to engage some of the hardest issues, but doing it with grace and tact and with a certain level of responsibility and ownership is really powerful. I would like to send some good bull to my in-laws, David and Cheryl Rydeen. Uh, David works for Raising Canes mm. and they have, uh, they, they take their CSR pretty seriously there you go. as well. Absolutely. So Kyle Gamenthaler, thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing your time with of us. Of course. This is great. We hope you enjoyed the episode for our Mastercast top three takeaways. We wanted to talk a little bit about Strengths Finder just because I think it's so fun. And I love the intersection of strengths and marriage and how, how it helps you really understand your partner better. And I think Kyle talked a little bit about that with his wife and empathy and some of their strengths and how they overlap. And it's pretty adorable. Strengths Finder was 
a place where we talk about like the barrier, the shadow side or whatever. Uh And individualization is one of my strengths. Mine too. And that was, as discussed with Mike Alexander on another episode, Mm -hmm. that was where I had the potential to run into problems. If you individualize too early, some people will feel like you are not treating everyone equally. And for people to whom justice is particularly important, that can be a real problem. Absolutely. For Um, me, consistency is it used to be called fairness so it's it's really like fairness consistency is my 34th strength you're not supposed to look at your whole list of strengths you're supposed to focus on your top five until you've had some time to digest it Mm -hmm. so a natural thing to do is to go to your 34th to see what it is but my 34th even though i probably shouldn't focus on it is consistency And the interesting thing about that is the contrast of consistency and individualization that I don't need to treat you exactly the same in order to feel like things are fair. In fact, I think it's unfair to to treat everybody exactly the same because we just don't live on level playing fields. And that's where individualization comes in and can be harmful, can have a shadow side. I'll say it that way. Yes. I made Ryan take strengths, I guessed three of his five. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty well, good, yeah. right? Well, yes, it's very And one of, them, one of them, I think he needs to retake the test. No, I'm just kidding. He has adaptability as number one. And as a wife, I mean, I feel like he could be more adaptable. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I, that's not fair. He's <laughs> always adaptable. <laughs> It's fine. Ryan, you're you're so adaptable. You're the most adaptable. You are, except on a few things. (laughs) So Ryan has adaptability as his number one strength, but his number two and three are the most obvious, and it's deliberation and intellection. And Mm -hmm. I mean, he is very in his head, which is great in a lot of ways. I mean, he is very deliberate about solving problems and making decisions. And I am very immediate about doing those things. And so it really, we balance each other out nicely. He has empathy. I don't, so it works out great, but it is interesting trying to guess other people's strengths, which you probably shouldn't do. No need to diagnose your partner. Just get them to take the test. My favorite Enneagram joke is that my wife is, (laughs) I like to accuse her of Uh saying that her type is six and mine is six, six, six when she's annoyed (laughs) with me. That's a joke she would never actually make, but I put those words in her Our listeners are like, what? What is happening? Well, check out, just Google. Enneagram. And you can take the test and then you'll find out which one you are. Right. For our second takeaway... I thought what Kyle said about the Gates Foundation Mm -hmm. being open with failure was really important for nonprofits. I think that's probably when I've had the honor of working with quite a few nonprofits and when I see them fail is not because something went wrong, but because they tried to kind of hide that something went wrong. And inevitably, at least with the populations that I'm used to working with, my uh, dissertation research was related to women who were exiting the sex trade. So it was pretty... I remember we talked about that. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about it on the show at some point, but it's not easy work. And to pretend that it's going to be successful even 50% of the time, is just unrealistic. And a lot of organizations really try to hide their mistakes or, and not even, I don't even mean mistakes within the organizations, but just when things don't go Shortcomings, perfectly maybe. right. Yeah. yeah. And, or when they have to pivot, instead of capitalizing on that and saying, hey, we're learning from our mistakes. Here's something new, cool and new we're going to do. It feels like failure that 
that is de- debilitating. And I think that's where nonprofits really make a mistake. And certainly the Gates Foundation has the luxury of making a lot of mistakes and being open about it because mm-hmm. they just have virtually unlimited funds and not everyone does. But I think leaning into those mistakes a little bit more or at least owning them and asking your supporters for help in overcoming those is just so important for nonprofits. I think it's really important for everybody. When someone yeah. makes a, you know, makes a really critical mistake in an organization for profit or not for profit, yeah. you know, I, I tell people regularly in different areas of life, no, that's we that's money we just spent on your education. Yeah. So we can now we would never want to part ways at this point. I mean, not that there is nothing you could do that would make an organization part ways with you. But when you've made a very expensive mistake, that's a learning experience that has now become valuable to you and to the organization. No, I agree. I think nonprofits oftentimes are operating on a a smaller margin, just a a smaller margin of error. They, They can't survive them as easily sometimes as organizations. Right. And so the mistakes or the, the, failures or whatever it is just feel bigger and can have a bigger impact. But still owning those is equally important in both organizations. I have to shout out to my boss, Dr. Arvind Mahajan, who I think is one of the best I've been around at knowing how to handle me when I make a mistake, Mm -hmm. knowing how, because, and I think he, it's probably his skill as an educator just in learning from the mistake, not harping on it, but certainly not letting me off the hook. He's really good at just saying, hey, next time. And of course, I don't make a lot of mistakes. (laughs) We were talking this week about how pride's not a problem. (laughs) I got that in spades. No, I mean, it's not like I'm making huge mistakes, but you know, if I do something that bothers him in a way, or if I forget to do something or just, you know, make a mistake, he is just really good about addressing it head on and not making me feel like I need to dwell on that mistake, but that I can learn from it and okay, won't do that one again and, and move on. And I can be the one who dwells on it. So I appreciate that about him. For our third takeaway, I appreciated the conversation you two had around when help feels good Mm -hmm. and when help feels disempowering. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important conversation to have again, maybe especially in the nonprofit space or in our personal life where in business we have a profit focus and hopefully that profit focus is done in a sustainable way, but it's aligned with our profit. But when we are truly helping in a philanthropic environment, I think doing that in a way that doesn't undermine the dignity of who we're trying to help is really important and also really challenging. Yes. And it's pretty straightforward to see why that is particularly important in this space where the relationships feel more vertical. Yes. Where someone has power and someone has has less less power. power. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're in need of help. Yes. Yeah. It's something that I wouldn't have necessarily been acutely aware of, but in the adult education PhD, it has a real social justice focus. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly talking about how do you do that in an effective way? How do you do community development, community education in a way that engages 
the group you're trying to help. And a lot of kind of the theme around adult education would be engage the community in the problem solving. Don't assume that you have the solution or even that you understand the problem as well as the community or the group or the people or the person that you're trying to help. And I think that's true when people are disadvantaged economically or even in Kyle's example where he talked about his son and Kyle has a lot of advantage and he talked about a lot of privilege that he has, but still I don't have a child with special needs. And so my understanding of Kyle's situation is always going to be partial. I'm always going to misunderstand to not have a complete picture of what he's feeling and experiencing. And when I go to him knowing that, when I go to him feeling like I don't have this all figured out, that interaction with him is going to start much better than if I go acting like, I mean, it's like what you said, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. I mean, even if you've had the same experience or a similar experience, you just don't know how I feel about it. Right. And our understanding of each other is just always partial. Yes. Always incomplete. It's always helpful if the other person can tell you how to keep the elephants out of their garden, so to speak. Yeah. I think you're referring to a Gloria Steinem story about how women were having a hard time figuring out how to farm in an area. And a lot of nonprofits were going in trying to figure out how to help them because the women were not able to make an income farming. They were resorting to other means for making an income. And all these organizations had these big ideas of how to help bring in more machinery and all this stuff. And Gloria Steinem went in and she was talking to a group of 30 women in this village and she said, what would help? And they said, find a way to keep the elephants out of our garden. And it was basically build a fence or redirect the elephants so that they're walking through a different part of the land Mm -hmm. and not through the women's garden. And it solved all the problems. And it was a simple solution. And Gloria Steinem said, helping begins with listening. Context is everything people who experience a problem know best how to solve it versus going in and just saying, well, let's bring in some heavy equipment to make the farming more efficient. Right. It's first, not the simplest solution. And second, it's not going to solve the problem because you have to redirect the elephants. Uh, That's a good quote. Let's close with another one. You say this one. Sure. So this one, I'm going to say this one because it's my favorite quote that I came across in my PhD. I think I used it as the intro to almost every paper I wrote. But the quote is from Elizabeth Ellsworth from an article she wrote called, Why Doesn't This Feel Empowering? And the quote is, If you can talk to me in ways that show you understand that your knowledge of me, the world, and the right thing to do will always be partial, interested, and potentially oppressive to others, and if I can do the same, then we can work together on shaping and reshaping alliances or constructing circumstances in which people of difference can thrive. Thanks for your eardrums. We would like to thank both of our marketing and production specialists, Julie Faulkner and Megan Barsinski, for all of their hard work behind the scenes and making our lives so much easier. And of course, our fantastic hosts, Ben Wiggins and Shannon Deer. I'm your producer, Kyle Ackerman, saying thank you, and we'll talk to you soon.